Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. What's good, everyone? Welcome to episode 218. And featuring on this episode is Sean Factor. Sean is an Australian small cap trader with 20 years in the game. He's also a co-founder of 180 Markets, a firm that provides investors with direct access to capital raises. We don't spend too much time on Sean's backstory. Instead, we get straight to chatting about his trading approach and how instinct plays a large part, as well as anticipating what sectors are likely to heat up in the near term. And given the substantial volume that Sean trades, I get him to explain how he goes about building into positions and, of course, getting out of positions, which is often timed with what he describes as a liquidity event. Then towards the end, we cover a topic not yet covered on any previous episodes, capital raising. So Sean firstly explains the motivations for companies to raise capital, then how he spots a good deal, how the raise amount and discount to share price is decided, when capital raising is perceived as negative or positive by the market, so on and so forth. And that's all from me. Here is my interview with Sean Factor. I know you've been trading like, I think it's 25 years or so. I'm sure there's a lot we could go into there, but I'm really quite interested to really hear more about how you're trading now, the sort of things you're doing now. Um, And then also just to get a better understanding of what happens when companies raise capital and that type of thing. So let's kind of just focus on those two things. But I will ask you, first of all, you know, if you just think back over those those last 25 years, can you recall any defining or like pivotal breakthrough moments? There definitely were a few that um, I can go through and it wasn't an actual moment it was it was more an actual just getting confirmation that what I was doing was right and a lot of that is just going through good patches where 
you work out a a good strategy and and it works more often than not and I do definitely remember it was probably early 2002-2003 where I realized I was pretty good at what, what I was doing and I had developed a strategy that was right for the market at the time and I think that's what it comes down to because the market changes so much and there's so much different factors that affect the market that you got to when you when you got a strategy that works it won't work for every market so a lot of the strategies that I use in a good market definitely would not work in a bad market and it's all about I guess getting more confident in your own ability to pick winners and ability to read the market and to adapt to the changing situations. Yeah, there's been quite a few moments along the way that you get pretty pretty happy with yourself that you're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> Can you speak a little more to the importance of good patches? I think that's probably quite quite crucial, isn't it? That's right. Well, I think what's important when you're trying to trade the market over the long term is that you take advantage of the good patches and you don't overtrade in the bad patches. So what I mean by that is in the bad patches, you still stick around, but maybe your trading size goes down to about 20% of what you trade in a good patch. And the good patches are, look, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of extraordinary good patches and extraordinary bad patches. But last year was an extraordinary good year for trading. It's And in a year like that, you just got to make hay while the sun's shining and you've got to – take advantage of the volumes and the liquidities and I wouldn't say overtrade, but if you couldn't make money last year, then you're not going to make money in, the, in any sort of market because last year we had a lot of people staying at home that weren't traders and became traders and just added so much more volume to the market that it really made trading easy. Normally in a average to good market you have one hot sector and that makes i mean you that's where our market's great because in there's different sector a lot of different sectors and once you get investors scrambling over stocks in a certain sector you can really you can make good money but last year we had so many different good sectors I mean, some examples where I remember cannabis stocks just went nuts, but for about two or three weeks. And we had lithium stocks and just whatever. There's, I mean, crypto, it's a pity that there aren't a lot of crypto listed stocks here because there was a small patch when they all went nuts, but the ASX has seemed to tighten down on all that and has made it really hard. But it's just about finding the sectors that are hot. And last year, we just had sector after sector just getting hot. And we had biotechs that everyone got excited about and nickel stocks and vanadium and battery and just whatever the market could find a theme in, it seemed to work. 
It was also a very forgiving market last year. Anything you were down on seemed to come back and you could still make money. Last year was rare. It's, it's um, I think we're back to a normal market now where volumes have quietened down and there aren't, I mean, at the moment, there aren't really any hot sectors, but there's, I mean, we're definitely in a very stable sort of environment now. Yeah, it was really upsetting that we didn't have more uh, crypto blockchain related companies on the Agreed. Australian market. I was um, quite yeah. envious of the US traders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for someone like me who's only traded stocks, it's when you see the returns that some people made trading cryptos, they they were, I mean, you add an extra zero or two zeros onto the returns that we make here. So the ASX, unfortunately, delisted a lot of them, I'd say, 18 months ago, and they just haven't been able to, we haven't been able to get the exposure here. So there's, it is it is really unfortunate that there aren't crypto stocks around to, to, get it, to get into here. Yeah. Now, a lot of your trading is concentrated to the small cap space. Has that always been the case? Yeah, pretty much. I'd say I started trading, well, I started in the tech boom and that pretty much since then, all I've traded is of small caps and occasionally I'll trade a, a mid cap. But in terms of getting bigger positions, they're all in small and micro caps. So I just feel like that's a sector I know pretty well. And if you switch over to mid caps, you're trading against a lot of algorithms and the computers really take over. So there is still a lot of that in small small caps, but it's 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 a whole different ballgame trading mid and large caps. So I've only yeah focused on small caps. Occasionally I'll take mid cap placement, but most of it that that'd just be for a short term trade, and that wouldn't be it wouldn't be a big position. So it would probably just be a more like a stag. The only time I'd, I guess, buy and hold a when you get a hot tip from someone you trust, but even then it's it's more going to be about the fundamentals. And as we know, fundamentals are more, they're more taken to effect mid to long term. A lot of the, the trading that I'm doing is looking for short-term movements. And a lot of the times, unfortunately – or maybe even fortunately, fundamentals don't really matter in short-term trading. Okay, well, let's get into more of the nuts and bolts of it. So, you know, talk a little bit about your strategy or some of the strategies or some of the ways in which you trade. I mean, just very straightforward. How do you decide what stocks to buy? Like, what are the key things you're looking for? So, a lot of people often ask me that. And at the end of that, an answer because it's my gut. It's you just get a gut feeling about watching stocks, and at the end of that, I don't use complex charts. I'm using very easy price and volume, and watching a lot of the same stocks, and I understand the way they trade. So 
a lot of it is my gut. But one of the biggest things that I'm, I've got to make sure and I'm confident in is that the volume is there because I'm training pretty big volumes and you've got to make sure that it's not just easy to get in, but it's probably even easier to get out. So it's, it's really, you've got to make sure that volumes don't dry up and there's been volume around in the stock for a while. So a lot of it is, is not just one simple strategy, but it's a lot of it's about, about psychology rather than an actual strategy. So you've got to make sure that you're not too greedy. You keep doing what you're doing and not, not hold on to positions too long. So I don't really look for the five and 10 baggers. I, I'm rather going to look for the, for the opportunities to maybe make 20 to 50% and then maybe occasionally double my money. So it's, it's going to be pretty rare that, I mean, I don't even know if I've ever had a 10 bagger. It's not something that I'm trying to do. It's, I mean, a lot of people were able to do it last year continuously, but I'm more interested in turning my capital over. And I guess what, when I'm doing placements with companies now, the first thing we say to them is we're in it for a good time, not a long time. And I guess that's my whole strategy in the market is making sure I'm not going to be too greedy. And if a stock goes up, then I'm going to get out. And even with placements now, when we do take a lot of volume, we wait for liquidity liquidity events and that's when I'd get out so yeah it's it's I mean one if there was use of the word strategy then a lot of the times like especially with placements now we're going to try and pick a sector of the market that that we think is going to heat up and then the stock may be like a very liquid one that we think is going to get volume and traders will will push up the share price. So there's many different examples of over the past few years of sectors that we've picked and a lot of the times, even if we're not right straight away, eventually the sectors will become in favour and you can just, yeah, as long as the company's got sufficient funding, then you can feel safe to hold on to it. You know, if I spin that question a little bit, maybe if we look at some of the, you know, just a couple of the stocks that you currently hold in your portfolio, like, could you just go through, you know, the reasons why you hold those? Yeah. So pretty much what I said before, it's, it's about trying to find stocks that a lot of the times I'll go into big positions let's say through a placement and and it's not while the stocks are hot it's more getting in maybe at a lower at a lower point just having a view that the the stocks in the sector that's going to heat up those are more the ones I hold rather than trade i guess that i'm really like I'm always looking at sectors and sectors that have been hot recently and 
what caused him to be hot in the past and what's going to maybe what, what's going to be a catalyst to get it going again. So, like when gold, gold and silver stocks go through re, real up and down patches, and obviously when the gold price goes up, that causes a lot of liquidity and um, volume to come into the small small and micro gold stocks and you can make really good returns that way. But there, there's often things like making sure the company is well-funded before and it's not going to raise money along the way because often the capital raise will be at a discounted price. So it's it can be pretty risky to hold just for the sector if you think that the company's not well funded. So, yeah, a lot of the positions that I'm holding are mainly more fundamentally connected to sectors rather than company fundamentals. Right, that does make sense. What gives you an inkling that a sector may be about to heat up soon? It's hard because a lot of the times we'll we won't get in when the sectors like completely dormant and not no when there's no enthusiasm around it, but it's more when I guess it just starts moving. So often there'll be quite a few sec stocks in the sector that start moving first, maybe the bigger ones and then the smaller ones will follow on. So there's no set formula for saying, okay, this. I think that the sector's going to, like a lot of the times the, um, the let's, say, let's say you pick a commodity, let's say lithium, for example. It's, we've had quite a few lithium booms on our market where all stocks in the sector goes nuts, but Sometimes you, there may not even be a good reason for it apart from a few stocks leading the way and then everyone just follows on. So obviously the main catalyst would be if you get the lithium price going up and demand's a lot higher than supply and it starts off that way. But sometimes you may just not have a – there may not even be a reason that a sector's going well for a sector like medical cannabis, it, I'd say that's probably the most popular sector for traders to all pick and and really move a whole sector because there's not a lot of stocks here that are listed. So there's probably maybe 20 to 30 and maybe 10 smaller micro caps. But once the bigger ones start moving, normally due to something that's happened overseas or some sort of legislations that made the whole sector fundamentally more more better for 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 everyone. I guess it depends on how many stocks are listed as well. So, I mean, last year that we had like I think we had two different cannabis booms on ASX, and both were great from a trader's point of view. Not just um, people they were holding, but for day trading, the volumes that go into these stocks are nuts. So that's, I mean, that, that it's really hard to give reasons why we pick sectors. So, I mean, it may be just as simple as, okay, this so other sectors have, 
have run, but this sector hasn't. Let's hope this is the next. So there will be certain times that we just place it on hope, which is a pretty dangerous thing to do, but yeah. (laughs) Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Can you speak to how you build into a position? Uh, I know you said a little earlier that sometimes you'll get in through placements and then start buying on market, but yeah, just in a, in a typical scenario, how do you get into a position? Because, you know, I've seen some of the volumes that you trade and I know that I'm sort of familiar with some of those stocks as well. And I know that you can't just get in in a couple clicks. So how do you go about that? Yeah, exactly. So if you're buying on market and the same applies to when you're selling on market, you want to buy, you want to act in a way that doesn't influence the market because if I want to go and buy, let's say, 10 million shares of a two-cent company that's not very liquid, you can't just go and place that full 10 million on the buy at once because you're not going to get your stock because other traders are going to see that and they're going to buy the stock in front run you. And unless there's a seller around, you're not going to get any stock. So you've got to – and obviously when you're selling a big amount, you've got to – do it in smaller, smaller volumes. So you may buy 200,000 shares at once and then maybe wait a few days and buy more and wait for sellers to hit the market. And when buying on market, you've got it's really a game of psychology. So if you if you don't have access to a placement or a block trade and you want to buy a big volume, you've really got to do it discreetly. So you've got to, I mean, years in the market has taught me how to do that. And look, it's, there's nothing worse than making money that when you're up on a stock and you start selling and then everyone else follows your selling and the share price falls. So it, it can be really a game of psychology, just being careful. So yeah, on market buying is a, one of the ways I enter, and obviously the much easier way is through a placement because you can get volume in a placement, and especially 
with what what I'm doing now when I choose a stock that I I like and 180 Markets does a capital raise that I cornerstone, then that's that's a very easy way of getting volume and you don't need to sit there trying to buy every little share on the market. It's it's a lot easier just getting in through a placement. But, yeah, it's not always possible. And a lot of the times I'll do both. I'll get in on the placements and then buy on market as well. Okay. So if you are trying to accumulate a position, you know, you gave the example there of, you know, you might buy 200,000 shares one day and then some more the next. But, I mean, is it as simple as that or are you actually kind of there throughout the day, you know, working little orders, um, you know, from open to close kind of thing? Yeah, I may be. I may be. I mean, I use a pretty good platform that I only pay, pay brokerage once a day that, at the end of the day, it accumulates all the buyers and I'll pay one lot of volume and all the sales the same thing. So I'm, I'm paying a flat rate and it doesn't matter how many times I go and buy. So we'll go back to that example of a two-cent share and let's say I wanted to get 200 grand worth and own 10 million shares, then I may buy an even lots of 30,000 during the day. It'll just be a matter of, doing it in a way that the market doesn't feel like you're the same buyer. So I'm not going to go and place a $1 million bid unless there's a seller there. So if someone comes and puts in a big sell, I might either wait for people to sell down or I'll, and then I'll go on the bid for a bit or I'll just buy out the big seller. And that's obviously a lot easier. But it, it's, I guess when you're trying to accumulate a big position – you're buying or trying to sell, and probably more especially sell, you want to make sure that the market doesn't catch on to it. A lot of the times people look at market depth and get excited by big bids. I actually look at the opposite because often big bids aren't real bids. If someone wanted to buy a parcel of stock, usually they're not going to put their full amount that they want in the screen especially in a way that's going to affect the the depth because the depth is very important, but I keep using the word psychology. Psychology is extremely important in the market depth. There's, there's a lot of games that are going on and there's a lot of algorithms and trying to pick pick what's happening in the depth is also very important to trading. A lot of times you may buy a stock because there's a lot of buyers in there, but they can all disappear just as quickly as they arrived. And there's a lot of illegal activity as well that goes on with people putting in fake bids and fake offers, and that's you've got to watch out for that as well. So it's, it's really important that you understand the market depth and you understand the games that are being played. What's your logic for how big to be in a stock? How big? Yeah. Well, how much I like it, I guess. <laughs> um, I guess it's as simple as that. The more I like it, the bigger I'll go. I don't look at at a portfolio balancing and I've got too much in one sector or too much in, in another. Um, yeah, it's more, it's more how I like the stock and – I guess that'll determine it and be that there's liquidity in there that 
if I change my mind, I can get out too. So I'll never go big into a stock with no liquidity unless if I'm going to hold on for a while and I'm buying for fundamental reason, which is pretty rare. It's fundamental, the company, I mean, rather than a sector. But to go big and hold long term, it's not what I'm doing. It's rather rather take the risk out of it and go shorter shorter term. There's, yeah, the market can just change too much in over over time. So how do you how do you determine a point for where you're wrong on the trade? Because as we just spoke about, like you're, you know, more often than not accumulating a position perhaps over several days. So you're kind of, I guess, working an area. So you're buying at, you know, a range of different prices. Yeah. How do you find, how do you determine which point you're wrong on the trade? Yeah, look, it's a pretty bad feeling when you have been buying and you think, okay, I've got too many now and I'm not actually that comfortable with the position. And a lot of the times it'll happen once you've got your once you've got the amount of stock you wanted, and you just realise that there's too many sellers in the stock. That it's a pretty bad feeling when you change your mind on a on a stock, and especially if the the liquidity dries up. It's yeah. It's I guess I, I often ask myself a question is. If I'm not buying, then I guess maybe I should be selling. So I don't. It's when you're when you stop buying, and if you don't want to buy anymore, that's often the time that you that you're going to be selling. So yeah, it's it's. I mean, there's there's often not just an individual one reason when you figure out okay. I'm probably I don't love the stock as much as I did. It's it's usually a few and it's more maybe a, a change in momentum of either the sector or the stock and you just realize that you've been wrong. So when it comes down to doing what I'm doing, you just hope that the you I'll have a lot of losses, but you just hope that the losses are are on the smaller positions and not the big ones. But yeah, often when you get a big position that's that's wrong, it can be hard to get out, and that's why you've always got to make sure that there's liquidity around. Can you recall a time, or more so, a trade that did go horribly wrong when there wasn't the liquidity to get out that you were hoping for and relying on? Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example, not an actual trade because I probably don't even remember it, but where where I've gone wrong and I spoke about it to the guys not long ago that I find when I go on good runs on the market, as in I have quite a few good trades in the in a row, I often change the, my mentality to gambling mentality and you think you've, you're doing so well, you just go bigger and bigger and you're going to keep making and it does happen a lot of times to me that when I go on a run, it often ends with a bad loss because I'm not I'm not using my same rules that I usually do, and I'll change my mentality to a gambler's mentality and just think, okay, I'm going to keep going harder and harder, and 
at the end of the day, it's if you don't if you don't have rules in place and you don't follow your gut, then that's what could happen. And vice versa, I've had losses when I've been on a bad run and I try to make it back. And you try to make it back by gambling. So a lot of the times, like especially in a bad market, what the best thing to do is just to stop for a while and say, okay, I've gone through a bad patch, but I'll come back slowly and make the money back. But a lot of people would rather just try and make it back quicker. And that's when you change your mentality to gambling mentality. And it happens, I find, on the two extremes. One is after a really good patch and after a really bad patch. And I've, I mean, a lot of people say to me at the end of the day, what you're doing is just gambling. But I think to 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 make this like an occupation and to make it into something that's more than just short term, you can't have that gambler's mentality, and you can't. You've got to have reasons behind what you're doing. And I mean, they say at the end of the day that 99 percent of traders lose money. So, I mean, I reckon it may not be as high as that, especially in a good market. But more traders lose money than make money. So, I mean, I must be doing something right. It's, but it's it's often about the mentality that you use and also making sure that you don't go too hard in a bad market and you really you don't you're not relying on making money every week. You don't have to make money week in, week out, month month, every every month. It's more about the longer term that you're doing the right thing. So I mean the message that I often say to new traders is don't start if you need to rely on income. So a lot of people have asked me in the past, should I start trading? And my, my, my answer is usually no, that most people will lose money. And, I mean, I started when I, when I think I was 20. I was still living at home. I obviously didn't have kids, but I, I wasn't reliant on making an income. I, had, I mean, I started off with a little bit of cash and I guess I was just punting it on the market rather than, trying to make money to support support like a family. Yet yeah, I'd never encourage anyone just to trade for income. It's it's gotta be I think more of an occupation. A more of a um they just you can't put pressure on yourself to to make that income. When you find yourself slipping into what you described as a gambling mentality is there anything you do to correct that? Yeah, I guess I'll realize what's happening and I'll know it's happening and I'll try and correct that. So I'll take my losses and you you kind of use your – go back to your old rules and you'll – yeah, but I, I know when it's happening. That, that's the thing. Like a lot of the times, even when you're making a mistake – You'll sit there going, okay, I am going too big in the stock, but fuck it, I've done so well. Yeah, but I'll be like, okay, I've had such a good patch. Who cares? I'm just going to go even bigger. And um, and I'll know in the back of my mind I'm doing the wrong thing. And, of course, on the other side, when I've had a bad patch and you're trying to make it back, I'll actually know that my mentality's changed. So I guess after you've had that extra loss and you know that, okay, what I'm doing is wrong, 
you'll just go back to going a lot smaller and it's it it is like a lot of it's like a casino so <laughs> a lot of it is going according you go if you go bigger than what you normally go then a lot of the times it's it's because you taking that gambler's mentality look you got to have the capital to learn from your mistakes especially when you when you do make them like i continuously make mistakes and I'm lucky that I can keep learning from them, but a lot of the times when you do make mistakes, you just got to take an extra zero off your trading size and just go a lot smaller and realize what you've done wrong and then come back and do the right things. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah I'd say that the most important thing is changing your size to to back to a level that you can control it. Okay. Well, just let's say we're in a – a neutral period, you know, things are going reasonably well. How have you come to trade the size you trade? You know, has it just been a natural progression over the last 25 years or is it something that you've been very deliberate in how you've uh, sized up? Well, it's something that gradually happens over time, I guess, because the more cash you got to play with, the bigger size you can go. So if someone's trading with a million dollars, for example, they're not going to put $1,000 in each stock because it's going to mean nothing to them. So it's more about the amount of cash, I guess, that you're using. Um, So obviously when I started, I was a lot smaller. And over the years, I guess I've been able to go bigger because I have made a little bit of money along the way and it's more just making sure that you, I guess, are comfortable with the size that you're going and that it's, I mean, a lot of people when they ask, should I start up, I'll tell them start up very, very small. Don't don't paper trade because that'll mean nothing. So the example I said before, if you use, if you've got a, let's say you've got a hundred thousand dollars and you go $100 a trade, there's no point because you're not going to learn. You've got to trade with a bit that's going to affect your, like paper trading is is a completely different mindset. So, yeah, I guess the size just depends on how much you're using and how much you want to put into each stock. Like I don't like to own... 50, I don't want to own 50 stocks at once. I'd rather own 10 or 15. There's, I know a lot of people that would rather trade and put five, maybe 2 or 3% in each stock and have more exposure. I would rather have maybe 10% in the stock or or larger percentage and own, own a big amount to make it meaningful when you make and lose money. Yeah, yeah. How long do you expect to hold a position? Now, I know obviously obviously this varies greatly, but, um, you know, are you looking to build into a position over a couple of days, hold it for a couple of weeks, and then sort of start to unload that? Or is it shorter than that, longer? What's your kind of time frame? So every time I'm getting into a stock, there may be a different reason. And I don't have a certain time period so I may do some day trades where obviously I'm not going to hold overnight because 
there's a lot of volume in the stock and risk is and there's risk holding overnight. So let's say I do 10% of my trades are day trades and I'm going to get out the same day. Then a lot of the times I'll punt stocks that are moving during the day and hold overnight, but I'll get out the next day. Then there's stocks that I like and that I'm going to accumulate maybe for a week. But then there's a my bigger positions are ones that I'm I'm looking to get in and I like to say for a good time, not a long time. So if we're doing a placement here that I'm looking to take a big amount of, I'm obviously not looking to flip it straight away because A, I've got a lot of volume, so that's going to affect the price, and B, my investors won't keep um, bidding with with 180 if we keep doing that. So a lot of the times we'll, we'll buy a stock, a big position, but wait for a catalyst that's going to – that we think is going to come and that's going to cause liquidity and that's when we get out. So obviously if that happens sooner rather than later, it's better because then you can move on. But sometimes I'll hold on to positions for six to 12 months, which is not ideal, but if I have to, then I will. And um, there's usually pretty good reason why I'm doing it. And there's a lot of the times I would have done my, I guess, research into the company and a lot of the times I'll enter through a placement and I'll know that the company is fully funded and they're not going to do another placement. So every trade that I'm doing has got a different – I mean, I, I normally – it's pretty unlikely I buy a stock for a day trade and I end up holding for a long time. Usually that's pretty bad. So that's usually when you're holding onto your losses and hoping that they recover. Sometimes I'll take placements, if it's not our placement, and maybe I'll buy it for a quick trade because there was a discount, but a lot of the times I'll just have a reasoning behind it. And, yeah, it's normally when you hope that there's going to be a liquidity event and that's when you're going to get out. And obviously the sooner that that happens, the better. So this is a, you've said this word a couple of times throughout the podcast, so I might just ask for some clarification around it. What do you mean by a liquidity event and why is this so important? So it's usually a event, I mean, it can be an announcement by the company. So let's say that the company is a biotech and it's doing a trial and they announce that they're starting phase two trials and it's going to be an event that either they announce a commencement or they announce results or it's a mining company that's that's waiting on a certain approval or something. It's normally going to bring volume into the stock, and it's it's normally an announcement by the company that's that's going to be, I mean, hopefully favourable and bring volume in, and that's an easy way to sell. But a lot of the times, it may just be a general market factor that causes volume in the stock. So. Let's say last year with the cannabis companies, there was everyone was waiting on a certain legislation to come through. I can't remember what it was, but when it came through, all the companies went nuts and there was heaps of volumes. So a lot of the times I'm buying, knowing that there's going to be some sort of event or events, multiple events, that the company is going to announce results and that usually brings volume into the stocks. 
So there may not even be an event that causes volume. It may just be other stocks in the sector going hot and liquidity comes in and it's easy to sell out. So it's usually usually when there's a lot of volume, that's that's a time when it's you've got to go against the market and sell out. Mm. Just one more question before we move off strategy-related topic because um, there's some questions I, of course, want to ask you around placements and raising capital. How do you adjust your trading during periods where there seems to be less opportunity in the market? And I think, you know, the current environment is is very much like that. Yep. So, I mean, speaking about the current environment, it is a very normal sort of market at the moment. I think there's not, it's not too hard. It's not, there's, there's, normal volumes, there's still runners, there's there's a lot of green, there's a lot of red, there's it's a stock picking environment that you can do really well in. But how do you adjust? I guess it's it's just about picking through, I guess, where the volume is and making sure you're not overexposed in sectors that go out of favour. I guess adjusting to different environments can be really hard because I remember maybe about five years, well, four or five years ago, we went through a massive cobalt boom and I was trading a lot of shells back then. Shell's basically a, a company that's, that's got nothing and has got a very cheap enterprise value and you hope that people are going to put in new new exciting assets into the company so we had a cobalt boom recently and i was buying a lot of stocks that they were putting cobalt in but all of a sudden the boom ended and you left holding big positions of stocks that are not in favor and you just got to i mean you either got to wait it out or you got to sell and a lot of the times you just got to take your losses and move on because the sector has gone out of favour or the market has turned. So it's you really got to make sure that you're not overexposed to sectors that are out of favour. And a lot of the times you just got to take your losses and move on. So, yeah, it's – I mean, and that's what that, – that's the hardest part of trading it's taking your losses and a lot of people end up not being able to do that and not being able to trade because no one likes taking losses but the amount of the amount of times that you just got to do it i think michael jordan made a fa- famous saying that he's he's failed and he's failed and he's failed and that's the only reason why he succeeded it's because you you got to learn from your mistakes and you have to make the mistakes, but you got to learn and you got to take your losses and admit admit that you were wrong and you admit that you've made the mistake, but it's time to move on. Does taking losses have any effect on you nowadays? You know, you've been doing this twenty five years or so. Look, it's big losses, obviously. I mean, I guess are you talking about mentally how it affects me? Yeah. Um, look, obviously, after a hard day, I like hitting the bottle like a lot of people do. And, 
but but a lot of the time that's not from losses it's more from frustration so i'd say frustration on missing out on positions or just the general market can cause that sort of frustration there's it wouldn't i mean i get just as frustrated when i'm losing money as when i'm even making money but just not making enough in a good market that's obviously really like something that I've got better at because you got to you can't take everything to heart and you can't have those frustrations and it's not good to hit the bottle after work like I often do especially when you've got a wife and kids but yeah look there are some days that are really frustrating and I guess one of the reasons why I started 180 markets was to do something a bit outside of trading and to to run a business that that doesn't rely on daily movements of the market it's it's i mean trading a lot of people look at it as a really enjoyable um no not hard work sort of job but i can tell you it's not that it's it's really there's a lot of frustrations that come with it and a lot of people just can't handle it okay so let's get into placements here very simply, why do companies raise capital? Why do they need to do this? And what does that mean even? Okay, well, a lot of companies are listed for one reason, and that's access to capital. So capital is is money, I guess, at the end of the day. And for a company to survive, especially a mining company or a biotech or, some, or a company with no income, they, the only way that they can continue operating is to rely on the market providing capital. So the majority of the stocks that I'm doing, as we said before, small caps and micro caps, and the majority of them don't have revenue and the majority of them won't have revenue ever, and a lot of them won't ever make a profit, and they're only listed for access to that to the capital for the capital. So what a capital raising is, is it's usually an IPO to get you listed. And then once you listed, it's through a placement or through a rights issue. But for, for, for this conversation, let's just say it's a placement. What usually happens is a company will do a placement at a discounted price to market and investors will bid in that, will provide the company with with new capital, with new money, and that's how all these companies survive. So, look, unfortunately, a lot of them are dodgy and not run well, and that's why they have to keep raising capital because they keep spending it on the wrong things, And but that creates opportunity, and there's a lot of opportunity in capital raises. A lot of people use them as a simple trading tool where they'll get in at the cheaper price and they'll exit on the market at hopefully a higher price. But And a lot of that will depend on the market conditions. So in a, in a market like last year, a lot of capital raisings were doing really well and continuously hitting the market above the capital raising price. And a lot of people last year were just taking every placement and just flipping it. But obviously in a more normalized market like now, you've got to be a lot more selective and it definitely makes it more challenging. So 
a lot of people just trade placements. They won't trade um, on market. But for, for for starters, you need to be a sophisticated investor to to take placements in Australia. And that usually means you need to have a little bit more cash than the average person. And to get access to these placements, you normally need a broker and you've got to do it through the broker. But what 180 Markets did for we, – we created an online sharing platform for capital raises. So our goal is to get access to every capital raise in ASX and provide investors with opportunities to basically use it as a do-it-yourself platform. I guess the reason why we started it off was because I was doing a lot of these placements, cornerstoning them through brokers, and then the brokers would end up controlling the raise, and I'd have little say, even though I was probably one of the big investors in the round. So we thought we'd create 180 Markets as a way for me to still do that and get investors to follow me into into raises. And we've probably done about 30 lead manager roles in the last year, which is, I mean, something we really, we're really proud of because we started the business in February last year with not a lot of investors, but it's it's growing exponentially and we now, we get access to to so many placements and do a lot of them ourselves where in every raise that we are the lead manager, myself and co-founder of 180 Markets, Greg Lowe, will, will, will lead the raise ourselves by investing through the cornerstone position. And, yeah, that's the, I mean, that's the most enjoyable part of the business is that we're now able to cornerstone our own raises without having other brokers trying to, I guess, build the book around us. We'd rather we can build the book ourselves and a lot of the times we'll allow other people to cornerstone with us and come in on size and and a lot of people can then get their fill on the stock rather than buying slowly a market. And obviously in a good market like we had last year, we did a lot of the raises went up multiple times, which is great. But obviously you have your losses as well and like like trading, it's important that you cut your losses for placements in the same way that you do for on-market buying. So how do you personally decide what raises you you will participate in? Like how do you spot a good deal? You know, what appeals to you? All right, well, there's two different parts of that. One is when we lead a raise and, and every time we lead a raise, those are handpicked by myself and the team at 180 where we'll – pick the company and we'll speak to them and we'll negotiate the deal ourselves. And a lot of the times that's around a sector thematic rather than a short-term trade. So, I mean, last year, I'll give you an example. Let's, I mean, we'll go probably one of the more successful ones we'll pick was RNU, Renascore. I mean, we were just really confident that the whole battery thematic would would come alive during the year and um we got in at one cent and the the whole sector was it wasn't well known and the company definitely wasn't well known but i mean we got really lucky and 
the whole sector picked the whole sector really went on fire and RNU went from one to about I don't know, hit a high of about sixteen cents and there were a lot of free options as well for investors. So investors made, I think I mean obviously most people didn't sell at the top and we definitely didn't, but the amount of volume that went through that stock last year was nuts. So that's one example of a of something that we that we picked pretty well and um a lot of the times we 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 just went into sectors that were already performing well and we, we were looking for a stock that was part of that sector but it hadn't moved yet. And that's, I guess, what we were looking for for our own investments. But in terms of the placements that we see going through the market, we, we definitely don't take them all because you've got to be choosy. You, we, we probably take, when I say we, it's myself and Greg, probably 10 to 15% of capital raises that go through 180 markets. And, yeah, you just got to be really comfortable. You know the brokers, you know the what the book, I guess what the price is, what the discount, if there are options involved and how well you know the company as well. So... Well, how is it decided how much to raise and, well, I guess how many shares to issue and at what price, like how much of a discount? So I'd say that the most enjoyable part of 180 Markets that I've found is organising placements and arranging that. So obviously there's a negotiation that goes through between the broker and the company. Usually the amount raised will be determined by how much the company can raise because every company can only raise between 15 and 25% of the issued capital every year. Uh, can you just make sure we understand that part? Can you please repeat that in simple terms? Okay, sure. So um, at the beginning of each year, companies are allowed, I, I don't know if it's financial year or year, companies are allowed to issue 15% of new stock to investors through a placement. Um, but they may get a special exemption where they can make a 25% and that's approved by investors at a meeting. So let's say a company has 25%. Let's say that they've got a $10 million market cap. They're then allowed to go and raise $2.5 million. So the price is determined usually between negotiations and the price will be, you're not allowed to go lower than a 25% discount to a 15-day VWAP, and I'll explain exactly what that is. So the VWAP is the volume-weighted average price, and that's basically all the trades that go through in a prior, let's say, 15 days to the placement, and you're not allowed to do it at greater than 25% discount to that. So let's say that the VWAP was $0.10. Cents. You're not allowed to do the placement lower than 75 So, I mean, maybe the company feels that they can do it at 9 It just depends on the amount of money that the broker can raise for the company at the price that the company is happy with. So 
I guess it comes down to like the market, demand and supply. It's it's the the company's going to say how much they can supply the broker with and and the broker's got to work out if it's going to have demand. But, I mean, what, what you want from a placement is always for it to be oversubscribed and that means more more bidders than the amount of stock available because that means a lot of the times people will then go and buy on market and that's what creates a successful placement. What happens in the opposite situation? Let's say a company is trying to raise $2.5 million but can only raise one and a half. let's say. Look, so what you've got to do as the lead manager or the broker handling the placement, you've got to go out and promote it with a amount that a minimum and a maximum amount that will be raised. So let's just use an example of um, a placement. When we, we just recently raised money for Briar, B-Y-H is the code. So we went out telling the market that we're going to raise between, I can't remember, I think it was between one and a half and two and a half million. But we only did that once we were 100% confident. We didn't want to go out to the market and you, you never want to start a raise when you are not confident at all that you can raise the money because it's a terrible look for not only the company but for the broker as well. It probably happens in, let's say, an average market like this, maybe 2% of the times we've seen it happen. And what eventually happens is the company raises a lot less at a lot lower price. I've got an example, but I want to give it because it's probably not a good look for the brokers that handle arrays, but I'll give just the pricing, for example. Like a company recently tried to raise money at 27 cents. They wanted to raise 30 million, but they went out to market and they promoted it that way. And obviously they would have been a bit confident before they were going to do it, but they fell way short and the raising had to be lowered to, I think, 5 million at 20 cents. So that was terrible for the share price. It wasn't a good look for the brokers. And it's it, it happens, but it's when when we go out and approach a company about raising capital, we'll always be confident, I guess, because we're cornerstoning that others will follow us in and we'll have enough demand. But it definitely can happen where you fall short and you just got to lower the price, but it's a terrible look for all those involved. Okay. Now, on the Australian market, when a company is raising capital, generally what happens is the stock is halted for a few days um, and then it resumes trading, um, you know, once the deal's done. Sometimes when it comes back online, the stock will get bought up and sometimes it'll get sold down. You know, yep. Sometimes it's received as being a very positive thing. Sometimes it's very negative. Like when is a capital raise perceived to be negative? When is it perceived to be a positive thing for the stock? So I guess the main, the main, um, the main reason will be if it's oversubscribed and how many times. So let's say a company 
goes to raise money and it gets exactly what it wanted in bids, but there's no leftover buying, then it's usually a bad thing because there's not going to be that extra support that comes into the market afterwards. But if it's, say, three or four times or even ten times oversubscribed and you couldn't get stock in the placement, then that's usually a reason why people will buy it. But probably just as important is who's the broker that's raising the money and what's their track record. So a lot of brokers go through patches on the market that they've seen as being, I mean, at least they tell people that they're the best out there and it gets to their head. And a lot of people like certain brokers and have seen the raises that they've done in the past have all been successful and then people will go and buy those mark those stocks on the market after. Usually when you can't get in on a placement, that's it's normally when people go and buy on market. A lot of the times it'll depend on the price as well and how big the discount is. So in an average market, a lot of the times the placement price will come straight back down to the placement price and you can't make quick money trying to trade the stock. But, yeah, a lot of the times, yeah, it just depends on who's running the book and how well the broker does. A lot of the times brokers will go and buy on market afterwards as well. So, I mean, that's something that we try and do on our lead manage deals. We'll, we like to try and support the stock. I mean, you can't always because you've got to make sure that you've got enough cash for the next one. But, yeah, a lot of the times there's follow-on buying, which can be perceived as very positive. What are some of the dodgy things that companies do with regard to capital raising? Like what are some of the things you should be a little bit wary of? I mean, it seems to happen all the time that a – a company will raise capital shortly after their share price has increased. Yep. So, I mean, I guess there's a reason for that and it's often not dodgy, but it's rather companies are waiting for a certain price to do a capital raise. So usually when there's, let's say a company is trading at 10 cents, but the company will, and the company did its last raise at 10 cents. It'd be a pretty bad look if the company went and raised money at eight. But let's say that the share price went up to 15, it may be able to now go raise money at 12 and a half or 13. And if you don't need the cash, you're not going to raise money when the price is down. You're going to raise money when the price is up. Now, I know it may look dodgy that because it does happen a lot, but a lot of the times companies are just holding out and when the share price does go up, that's when they do prefer to raise capital. And a lot of the times people like myself who will, I'd rather get into a stock above the lows rather than trying to pay the cheapest price. So I'll try and wait for volume to come into the stock and it to get the attention of the market. And I don't mind if it's going up already, I'll still... We'll, we'll still call the company and try and do a placement, even if it's at a higher price than what it was, because at least it's there's a reason why it's going up. You'd rather not get in on a placement on a falling stock that has a reason why it's falling. But in terms of dodgy things, 
look, there's a lot of dodgy stuff that happens behind the scenes with different brokers and a lot of brokers will only do placements if they only paid a certain amount and they're given retainers and they given free options and there's a lot of going back and forth that that happens. I mean, it's not all dodgy, but there's a lot of greedy people out there that will only do placements if they're getting high fees and high options and unfortunately a lot of companies fall for that. But, yeah, there's, I mean, I think I think for me there's one thing that I I think is dodgy and, look, some people may get it. <laughs> Hopefully people won't take this the wrong way, but I don't like it when a director has a corporate advisory firm that raises money for the company and gets paid a fee as well because they, they're a director. They're meant to be helping the company raise money. They shouldn't be paying themselves a fee to raise the money. So in capital raisings, that's the one dodgy thing that I see. And the ASX allow it, I don't know why, but it shouldn't be allowed. Is that something that happens frequently? Um, it does. More often than you'd think? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't realise that the directors are associated with the company raising capital. It's, they, it's, and then they end up paying themselves intercompany transactions and, yeah, I'll, I'd stay away from from those. Okay. So. <laughs> All right, Sean, let's call this a wrap. Uh, if someone wants to find out more about you, where is the best place to go? Um, well, I'd say just check out our website, www.180markets.com.au. You can send us an email at info at 180markets.com.au. And if you want to just ask me a question, just send me an email at sean at 180markets.com.au. Happy to answer questions and happy to chat again. Okay. And you personally, are you on any socials, Twitter, et cetera? Uh, 180 Markets is. Myself, I'm on Hot Copper, but I don't really use it. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like all the – Twitter's Twitter and Hocopper have got a bit too popular in my opinion. They people are just using it for ramping of stocks and there's a lot of bitching going back and forth between people, which is pretty bad, and people getting big heads and yeah, I, I think people who make money should keep should keep it to themselves, not go and promote themselves all over Twitter and Hocopper and all that. So yeah, I'll just go on there just to read what's happening. <laughs> I can appreciate that. All right, Sean, well, thank you very much for your time. It's been uh, really great to speak with you, learned a lot, and um, maybe we can do it again sometime. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.